This is a recording from week three of TWT's Know Your Enemy course. In this interview, Gargi Bhattacharya talks to Sita Balani about how the right is changing today, starting with Stuart Hall's essay, The Great Moving Right Show, on the emergence of Thatcherism and tracing the current terrain with Johnsonism, the new authoritarianism and the differences between how elite interests are served now and how they have historically been served under neoliberalism. To find out more about this course and TWT's work more broadly, sign up to our mailing list at theworldtransform.org. Okay, hello and thanks for coming to the second full video in the Knowing Your Enemy series. And today we're going to talk with Sita Balani, my my close comrade and family member, about some other incarnations about the right. Thanks so much for coming, Sita. Right. And we did talk a little bit about... um, how we some of the big big questions for the left that we might talk about but to set some background maybe we could begin by looking back to the influence of Stuart Hall and in particular the moment at which Stuart Hall identifies the moving right show which she really does I think almost just before before Thatcher but points to the groundwork that underlies the, the emergence of Thatcherism and I wondered if you thought we were living with the legacies of the moving right show and where the right might have been moving more lately. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things in that essay that's so useful is that Stuart Hall reminds us or tells us now when we look back that what prevented the left from kind of grasping Thatcherism as a distinct phenomenon was its habit of viewing history as a series of repeats. So he says, we've got to be really clear that though things do recur and continue, they don't recur perfectly. And so I think it's useful to look back at that essay partly for that insight so that we don't make the same mistake in expecting things to repeat absolutely. I think the kind of decisive shift to the right that he tracks in that essay, The Great Moving Right Show, which I really do recommend people go and read, is only a few pages. Um, comes through the response to both the economic crises of the time and the contradictions of social democracy. So what Thatcherism was so effectively able to do was to use those crises to reorganise the terrain. So to revivify powerlism in a more respectable register, so to get rid of the man, but to kind of keep his ideas and start to implement them, to take advantage of that contradictory position of the Labour Party when it's in government. So if it's there to broker that compromise between capital and labour, and it inevitably favours capital in that contradiction, the Thatcherism is able to kind of turn all of that to its advantage. And I think the other thing that's useful about Hall's analysis is that it allows us to think across these different spheres of the cultural, the economic and the institutional, and to show how a crisis might appear in one of those spheres, but take on different qualities in another. And so I think sometimes we have a tendency to look for a kind of clarity or something to a a, a crisis to appear to take the same shape everywhere. And actually what's useful, I think, about his analysis is that it says that a crisis might look one way in the economic sphere and take quite a different form as it makes itself known as a cultural phenomenon. And our job is to try and trace back the relationship between those forms so that we can act on them. Um, yes, yeah, so I think that's what's kind of useful about that. And that 
actually one thing we can kind of do with that is look at how different a project actually the writer uh, kind of attempting today mm -hmm. so Thatcherism was, was a hegemonic project um, in her words economics was the method and the aim was to change the soul right and that's kind of that often quote thing but I think it's interesting to think about because I don't think the kind of current projects I don't maybe John I don't, I'm not sure it really deserves the term Johnsonism but if it did it's much thinner project it's not trying to change the soul doesn't really care about the soul doesn't really believe in the soul um and I don't think we should think about a massive parliamentary majority as being the same thing as hegemony I don't think it's a hegemonic project in that way um it it's not trying to convince you it doesn't really care if you're convinced it's trying to make sure you're a pliant subject. It doesn't come with a kind of positive vision. It's Thatcherism came with that positive vision. It was meritocratic, it was aspirational. It said, if you come into my projects, if you play by my rules, if you identify yourself with the nation, you can improve your life. You can be one of the winners. And that wasn't true, but it was a very convincing story. It was a kind of an extraordinary story. And of course, you know, she smashed the union, she broke the back of organised labour, the defeat of the miners, the dissolving of the Greater London Council. So it did destroy the real material institutional basis for another project, another vision. But it implemented a vision in that place. It implemented a vision. And I don't think this is quite the same thing. I don't think it's got that kind of um, vision of possible personal individual hope in it at all. Yeah. No, and let me just go over a couple of the terms just because we have a very diverse audience and some of whom are, did not live through powerlism. So powerlism I take to mean um, a politics that is named around the politics of Enoch, Enoch Powell that goes beyond that, a kind of uh, making respectable of xenophobia at the heart of a nationalist project so that the nation is always a xenophobic nation that the migrant or the foreigner is always around as the most likely scapegoat and that that becomes like all crises in Britain are always crises around the figure of the foreigner. Um, and also the idea of the hegemonic project. In the last film we did with Tom Mills, we talked a little bit about the role of Gramsci and in particular Gramsci's idea that we need to understand the dominant class as also sewing together different interests in order to wield its power. But of course, it's only with the take-up of Gramsci that we start to think about hegemony as the way that power is wielded at all. And Hall is very crucial to how that's taken up in the English-speaking world about saying, as you've said, Thatcherism does do these hardline material things of changing around the pieces of the economy and the political actors. But it also sews all of that into a quite variegated project, which is meant meant to change our very being, as you say, our soul. And hegemony is about that, about how it makes you long for, not only makes you dominated, it makes you grateful, happy and longing for that domination. And that's a kind of step forward. And you know, I really agree with you. I don't think we're in that moment now. I'm not sure that hegemony is even the most useful term in the way that we've analysed it to think about what's happening now, because it's very, if there is a cultural call, it's thin. There's a little bit of a power like um, shadow, you know, when, when did Britain did not hate foreigners, but there's no, um, there's no coherent narrative of what will be gained by falling in behind the dominant, which is very different from Thatcher. That, Thatcher says, well, you know, be a homeowning democracy. 
that that's huge. That is a real material and emotional call that really works. But um, that isn't where we are now. I wondered, does that mean that the right is moving further right? Was it moving in lots of directions or? Yeah, I think it is moving further right, but not in a kind of even tempoed way. It's not marching slowly to the right. It kind of moves in leaps and then it gets stuck in its own sort of entropy for a bit. And then it, it needs energy from elsewhere. So it pulls on the energy from other projects, from extra parliamentary projects, mm -hmm. from people who don't even really seem to kind of conform to a sort of left right binary. So it draws on the energy of things like the anti-lockdown process or the anti-vax mm -hmm. stuff, which actually is not quite as clear as a project as we, we're used to, I think. So maybe we can go on to talk about that a bit more. But I think it is moving to the to the right in a couple of different related ways. The first being a massively authoritarian kind of law and order project. So we've got the police courts sentencing, police crime courts sentencing crime bill. I'm, you know the one I mean. Yes. Um, and the borders bill, the anti-refugee bill, mm. both of which are incredibly uh, authoritarian projects. They seek to criminalise solidarity, criminalise political action in very mm. real material, quite terrifying ways. So mm. that while at the moment um, uh, someone who is a kind of paid smuggler might get up to 14 years for aiding someone to uh, enter the country, for example, across the channel. Now, you, the sentence will go up to life and it, there will be no need to prove any kind of financial gain. So that means that if uh, some form of left project that sought to, uh, to rescue migrants from the channel, you could be sentenced to life for that, right? So, you know, the lifeboat service is suddenly going to be potentially criminalised with incredibly draconian sentences. Similarly, the new amendments uh, to the policing bill, I'm just going to call it that because I can't get the acronym right, yeah, yeah. Um, are incredibly draconian. They've invented a new offence of a lock-on. So obviously in response to the protest by Insulate Britain. Yeah. And really, I think what we'll see is really quite extraordinary kinds of sentencing. I think we'll see loads of new conspiracy charges. They're effectively trying to criminalise all forms of protest and protesters. So they're, they're trying to make protest-specific offences that, <laughs> that are aimed at stopping what they're going to call repeat protesters. So, mm -hmm. you know... This kind of side of things is sort of one authoritarian lurch to the right. But then we also have the economic side of things. So again, trying to track as Hall does things across mm -hmm. different spheres in which we can see this massive transfer of wealth from public to private hands. Now, I, I think it's important to note the difference between that and a more kind of ordinary business oriented neoliberalism that we've seen for the last mm -hmm. 30, 40 years, right? It's not It's not actually the same as that. I think that moment in 2018 where Boris says, fuck business, is actually quite mm. important. When he's when when the kind of what's going to happen to the supply chain after Brexit is made clear to people before it actually happens. And his response is that. I think that's an important moment because it suggests that elite interests are served by this project, but not the ones that we're used to seeing served in the way that they have been for decades. You know, like the European Union was much better 
at organizing labor markets, ensuring the smooth function of the supply chain than this project is. This project doesn't care about that. This project is like, if there's nothing on the shelves at Sainsbury's, that's your problem, not mine. Mm -hmm. You can live with the consequences of that. If business can't organize for HGV drivers to get stuff to you, it's not my problem. And their problem really is the transfer of assets into a kind of small collection of hands that are really kind of disaster capitalists. Mm-hmm. rather than the sort of smooth functioning of, of, of yeah. the system. Yeah, and ju- again, just so people don't always have to do the, the background reading. So disaster capitalism is a phrase that Naomi Klein coins to really talk about the ways in which, especially after um, the kind of asset stripping of Iraq in particular, and after um, Katrina in the States, after Hurricane Katrina, about the ways in which natural disasters and wars and conflicts and all the things that destroy life for ordinary people are business opportunities for some and a certain kind of corporate behaviour that is precisely going out and looking for those disasters as how their business will be framed and pursued. And if you look at some of the most um, globally powerful corporations of the 21st century, many of them have those wings, that security is one of their wings, but only one of their wings, or other kinds of business opportunity that arise when people's houses wash away or things like that. I think what's a bit interesting about this lot is that they're both the authors of the disaster and also the beneficiaries. Now, so Naomi Klein, she's talking about those people didn't directly cause the hurricanes, but when hurricanes come, all right, you know, that's good times for for us, for our profit margin. But this is a bit different, isn't it? This is like a willful, let's make disaster happen. Mm-hmm. Disrupt, tear it up. You know, that you and me sort of talked before about the role of Dominic Cummins as a kind of celebrant of, oh, disruption. Let's, it's more exciting. This is so boring. Boring, not quite functioning. Let's show you a not functioning state. Mm-hmm. I think that the slight non-functioning of the Cameron state that's small time, let's set off the fireworks. Yeah. And I wondered if that's part of a kind of right project as well. Yeah, I think it is. I think that that kind of chaos and disorder stuff is actually quite integral to what's going on here. Um, and some of that we can see in, in the kind of personality politics of it all, right? So the reason that Johnson is the man for this particular crisis, this particular right-wing formation, is because he clearly is a man of chaos, right? That's clearly his MO is chaos. That's why he does things like get on a zip line holding a Union Jack flag or whatever, because he, he likes the chaos. The chaos is part of his brand. That's why he dresses the way he does. It's all very carefully constructed. There's been plenty of, every few years, someone writes a book that tells us about how Boris Johnson's like air of chaos is something that he puts quite a lot of work into. So you don't need to go and read the book, you can just observe it and you'll know that that's true. And so that there's a kind of there's an element of, of that that comes in terms of, of personality. And that is not nothing actually. I don't think that he I don't think we should ascribe too much to him, but I do think that we should consider what it means that like there are a series of political figures that have emerged whose MO is chaos. What does that mean? What does that tell us? Well, we might need to think about why now is the moment for the Johnsons and the Trumps and the Bolsonaros. Like what's what's achieved by these kind of figures of chaotic masculinity, of unrestrained appetite. Something's happening there, I think, that we need to think about a little bit. But also this kind of disruptiveness um, 
is there in Cummings, who's a really massive kind of tech boy, right? He's a sort of, he kind of wishes he was a Silicon Valley character. And so he's made himself one here with his own little fiefdom. And obviously he's out of the project now, but his influence is still very apparent. So you can see in a way, um, if you've ever subjected yourself to reading any of his blog, it's very boring. Don't I wouldn't spend too much time on it. But it's really obsessed with the idea of doing things like they do it in Silicon Valley. So if we think about Google had that... Uh, Google's kind of mantra was to move fast and break things. I think that's kind of what they want to do with the whole economy. Mm. Um, and so speed is really important because it's a kind of decaying economic mm. project that constantly needs to to mm. nix, take stuff out of public ownership, mm. put it in private hands to inject some energy into the economy. Mm. Uh, so things start happening again. It does it in an incredibly kind of chaotic, disordered way. So if you look at the coronavirus contracts um that is an interesting space actually for you know as you said with with these previous examples of disaster capitalism you've got already huge businesses you've got these huge corporations the big security arms companies lockheed martin bae systems all of this they go and profit but what we're seeing in this instance is privileged access to state contracts for, yeah, some of the expected big hitters, Serco and G4S and all of that, but also from, like, some guy that one of them knows from down the pub. So it's, it's a slightly different thing. It's, like, it's not quite as... Yeah. It's not quite what we saw in the, the first sort of 10 years of the 20th century with Iraq and Afghanistan. It's something, I think, a slightly different thing is going on there when the landlord of your local pub can be given a contract to deliver testing in a pandemic like this is a slightly different beast and I think it is indicative of some of the ways in which they intend to run the show. No absolutely and I do wonder I mean this me just you've heard me say it before not everyone else has but I wonder if this is almost a, a post-powerlism. So Powell has Enoch Powell has a very explicit um, nostalgia for empire when you know he said he says this famous horrible inflammatory thing in his rivers of blood speech about how the black man will have whip hand over the white and what he means is we used to have the whip hand and that is how the world should be now these people we've been dehumanizing for centuries are coming here what could happen only revenge and violence um but it feels like we're in a post-power moment, not because we're moving into liberal tolerance, but a kind of the game is up, that there's there's nothing left in the imperial toy box. And Cummins is almost that. He's saying, this is all broken old stuff that, you know, he puts out his um, advert for, for weirdos or something. He's kind of saying, there's nothing in British institutions, including the elite institutions, worth saving. All that's worth doing is taking out the good bits and setting fire to the rest of it. And that feels like, oh, that's that's a shift, certainly for Britain. And I do wonder if it's a peculiarly British thing, because, again, as we've we've spoken about before, Sita, that the pandemic has been bad, but it's been very differently bad here in a kind of willful dismantling of institutions, of contracts between the state and the population, and just expectations. And I wondered if you could some of the things we spoke about earlier, whether you could talk about them a bit more. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that because I do think the pandemic has been quite extraordinarily bad here for one of the wealthiest countries in the world, um, which at some point had a, f a relatively functional welfare state. Um, we shouldn't ever over over egg how functional it was, but it did exist. There was a safety net. Um, the pandemic has hit Britain extraordinarily hard because it has been willfully mismanaged or managed to hit us hard right so um, I think sometimes the very poor media coverage of this and actually how exhausted everyone is from living through this makes it quite difficult to perpetually look at how bad it is here but much of the world has not experienced the kinds of of figures in terms of infection in terms of impairment in terms of death like we haven't actually seen that everywhere that's not been the case all over the world and even places that had considerably high death toll to begin with somewhere like Italy has actually managed to to kind of get things in order um to a much greater degree than has been possible mm -hmm. here and that I think one of the things that I notice is that you know um in some comparable nation state somewhere like Canada that you know they, they were hit by the pandemic but that actually like middle-class people are incredibly insulated from the pandemic. Um, so if you worked from home, your chances of getting coronavirus were very low, really very low. Actually here what's happened is that of course the pandemic has hit working class people, people in hospitality, people in healthcare, people with disabilities, racialized people who are disproportionately doing those kinds of jobs much harder than it has hit much more insulated middle-class people. But there has been a, a way in which the governance of the pandemic has said to everyone, you're on your own. And that hasn't happened everywhere. That kind of you're on your own has not actually been generalized around the Western world or around the world at large. I think that's important to think about because something is being done here to reshape our expectations. So something is being done to make sure that you understand that the contracts between state and citizen is broken but it's not happening anymore and so that's why i think that that makes it much easier actually for something like this borders bill to include that the, the state can just take away your citizenship that you can be stripped of it because i mean your citizenship seems to mean very little anyway at this point that's not to, to say that stripping it is not an incredibly serious violent thing it's incredibly serious and violent but i wonder if it's partly made po i think the two make each other each other possible so what you do in general allows for what you can do to some and what you can do to some allows for what you can do in general i think those two things work together i think the pandemic has really shown us some of that no that's really well put and i think that leads very well onto the um the kind of larger question that we're trying to do throughout the course is that so how how you know how do we understand the exercise of class power in our time that's kind of the question particularly through things such as the state and through corporations and the relations between those things. And I wonder if partly what you're describing is something about what, you know, my question is, what would Stuart Hall say now? If Stuart Hall would say, look, the great moving rights show, now is this fragmentation, dismantling of the state, lowering of expectations, halfway housing of citizenship rights, that these things are all how you make you dominate differently, not dominate in the way that Thatcher did. Thatcher did lots of violent things, 
But for lots of people, that just seemed like, yay, cheerleading. But instead of doing that, you might have 30 seconds of saying, oh, levelling up, but you'll just forget that immediately. And instead, what you'll do is you kick lots of people differently all the time. And one of the other things that's interesting about that as a rightward shift is it happens alongside lots of other eruptions of the right, not only the Tory party, but other kinds of actors, some electoral actors like UKIP, some other, to me, quite mysterious actors, like very, very, very angry white men fighting police about the imposition of masks in the street, these kinds of eruptions and, and those things looking a little bit, as you've said, like some of the things we see on our television around Trump, but, you know, the, the anti-vax and anti-mask protests seem to me to have some cultural affinity to the um, rush on capital. But there's, although I can't really articulate what that is, but there's something going on in that, which is precisely saying, stuff your right-wing party of social democracy. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's both a right-wing protest, but it's also against the right that we fight all the time. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that moment of yeah it's something I've been thinking about a lot and don't have a kind of clear through line on except that it's I think something we have to keep a really close eye on and the I think that one of the things that is quite a difficult pill to swallow is that just because things are ridiculous it doesn't mean they can't be highly effective I think that's been something that we've had to really uh, try and collectively learn over the last few years. So just because Boris Johnson's ridiculous doesn't mean he's not an important character in this. Just because those people that, that sort of marched on the Capitol were wearing ridiculous clothes and came in by private jet and seemed to have no real sense of what they were up to doesn't mean it wasn't actually quite a significant moment. So. We have to sort of try and manage our own desire to dismiss things um, that are kind of inchoate and contradictory and conspiratorial, because actually these are these extra parliamentary street and social media based formations are like gathering loads and loads of people into them. And they are gathering people beyond the people beyond the white men fighting in the street with the police about wearing masks. Yes, they're involved, but it's a much more diverse set of people on the streets and on social media around things like vaccinations, around the lockdown stuff, around masks, but also around organised transphobia, which is becoming a real flashpoint for the right. So I think that we're seeing these these kind of slightly odd formations um, aren't necessarily, they don't necessarily have a kind of conventional right-wing cast but um so uh quinn slobodian and william callison talk about this as a diagonal formation they kind of cross the right left boundary but that they lean to the right and i think that's a useful a useful thing to remember that they kind of lean to the right so even if there's a protest against lockdown on the very day that lockdown is entirely lifted so on the 19th of july when coronavirus cases were sky high and all non-pharmaceutical measures were binned, basically. There was a, a protest against lockdown, a lockdown that was not happening. This seems like it's a protest against Boris Johnson's government, but it seems to also provide some of the kind of energy, some of the kind of disruptive, move fast and break things, 
screw social democracy, screw liberalism, screw the social contract stuff that the Tory party in its current incarnation actually feeds off of. So it's an interesting set of of dy dynamics there that I don't think we can totally get a grip on, but I think we have to keep tracking. No, absolutely. And um, a conversation in the first session of the course was about when, when the old style far right would come and kind of kick you in and get in a scrap and then the cops would try and corral them into a different street. <clears throat> There's a kind of model of mobilisation that I think we're familiar with, that you don't, they don't need big numbers, but they need their numbers to be very violent. They need to operate as a certain mm -hmm. kind of violent cell, that the way in which they op occupy space or enter, especially um, black and brown spaces and, and come out of them and have a kind of accommodation with the police, all of that is part of how they operate. And frankly, for the last 40 or 50 years, they played an explicitly important role for the mainstream Tory party. There was, in the Monday, through the Monday Club and the right wing of the Tory party, there was a pretty much acknowledged porous boundary between the far right getting slightly more respectable far right to the right of the Tory party who are talking about, you know, how many wogs can we manage or not, and, and then going into the kind of wets. That seems to me that, the organisational forms have changed. So although there's something, as you say, that those are strangely anarchic eruptions do for the Tory party, it's no longer clear to me what the chains of connection are. And I think diagonal is a really interesting framing, but I wonder if some of those issues are not clearly off the left or the right. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of concoction of... Um, issues of extreme response which then the extremity of the response itself becomes a gift to an authoritarian tendency but it's not in the content of the issue and I actually wonder if even the transphobia is a bit like that yeah I think that's I think that's spot on I think that thinking about the ways I think this is one of the moments in which we have to think about the relationship between the technologies and our embodied and emotional experiences of them. Um, so I know Richard Seymour's done lots of work on this. I think his book, The Twittering Machine, is useful uh, for this, for showing what's kind of been reshaped about who we are and how we experience the world through our use of these platforms. Um, and that that kind of conspiratorialism um, that is at the heart of much of this is extremely... Is, it, it, it works with the addictive function of the platforms, I think. So that there's these platforms are designed to be addictive, right? They are designed to give you that little hit. They kind of function a little bit like a slot machine. Um, so that, that kind of pull down function on Twitter where you refresh, it's like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to get. Will it, will it be a winning row? Will I get my three quid back or will I get nothing, right? <laughs> like it kind of operates on that, um, on that level a little bit. And I think that if you combine that with the conspiracy, conspiracy theory um, and with the sense of being connected to a group of people that share this, these ideas with you through something like a WhatsApp group. And that starts to get at what, what emotional work is being done by these 
these kind of new political formations and also that they're organized around a kind of blatant entrepreneurialism right so if we live in a world in which there's an incredibly corrupt set of things happening in which you're constantly being sold things all the time I wonder if there's a bit of relief in some YouTube wellness influencer who both wants to sell you a face cream and wants to convince you that the vaccine will microchip you but at least it's all up front right yeah. at least it's all there on the surface at least we know what's happening there yes. and, and, and as we've said to each other previously that corruption is such a non-scandal in this country because a series of really open secrets of corruption have kind of inoculated the British public to thinking that politics formal electoral politics could be anything other than corrupt and money grubbing and therefore the honesty of saying I would like you to buy my product and I'm also telling you this kind of bypasses I think a, a, again a concocted cynicism around mainstream electoral politics mm -hmm. and bizarrely makes as you say these quite off the wall people be authentic voices for the right even if their content is not easily identifiable as a right agenda. And I think because there's a kind of widespread cynicism and rightly, I think, about mainstream or legacy media, actually the fact that this is this stuff is DIY, self-made, really helps to uh, inaugurate these as authentic voices, even if they then end up being precisely the spokespeople that the legacy media will go to, right? It's just that now the legacy media doesn't have to put any work or money into making them. You don't have to give anyone a column. You don't have to spend all this money on a kind of Casey Hopkins figure. People can just be picked off of YouTube. Yeah. And, that... and they're more convincing. Yeah. Because you can't see the seams because they made themselves, which actually the time has flown by. And I think that, but that was a, a lovely and intriguing, if difficult talk. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Gargi.